He made his Broadway debut as the director-choreographer of Sideshow and received a Tony nomination for his choreography of the revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song. His most recent works are Bye Bye Birdie, which he directed and choreographed, and Dreamgirls, that he also directed and choreographed, which debuts at the Apollo Theater in Harlem prior to a national tour. His work has been seen not only in New York, but Washington, California, around the country, and as far away as South Korea. My guest today is Robert Longbottom. Hello and welcome to American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the Wing, and I'm delighted to welcome Bobby Longbottom to our program today. Welcome, Bobby. Good morning, Ted. (laughs) It's nice to see you. You too. Thank you. When I was looking over the various uh, things written about your career, the word that occurred to me was you have not had a dull career. No. A man whose debut (laughs) was a musical about Siamese twins and then resurrected a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, which we'll talk about, and now with Bye Bye Birdie at the Roundabout and the the Dreamgirls coming up at the Apollo. Um, Let's start with Bye Bye Birdie since I saw it last night. And um, I will confess that it was the very first musical that I ever saw. Really? uh, With uh, Gene Rayburn and Gretchen Weiler. The replacements. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. I was young, but it was the first musical, as I think many of us, it was the first musical that I ever listened to the cast album of and loved every single thing about it. Was it still the Martin Beck, or had it moved? It had moved. It was at the Schubert, actually. And I sat next to Derwood Kirby, and I had no idea who that was. He was some television guy, but everybody was asking for his autograph. How did this production of Bye Bye Birdie come about? I had been meeting with Todd Hames about a project, and he said, what do you think about Bye Bye Birdie? And I said, I'd never thought much about it, actually. I guess I was one of the few people who did not appear in it in college or high school or community theater. And I took a look and I said, I think we should do a workshop of this. We should put it up at its feet and see how it speaks to us and what it feels like. And we did that two summers ago and it felt good. People said, yeah, this is funny. And I don't really know why it hadn't been revived. So um, we went forward. It wasn't something that I campaigned for. It was, it was a concept of Todd's to do and I was thrilled to be asked. That's great. When you did the workshop, was there anything about it that struck you as being dated or did you find a sort of charm to the whole thing? Well, it's it's entirely dated. And I, I think you can draw lines between um, Conrad Birdie and the current American Idol fetish and you know, how we love that five minutes of fame to happen even quicker these days and give them the bums rush off the stage when it's over. But that felt real to me and, and I had heard – of and seen a number of productions that were cast perhaps a little too old in the teenage ensemble. And I thought if, if like the Spring Awakening triumph, we can get genuine young people to play these roles without irony, without too much show business attached to it, it, it would be a fresh approach to it. And I think that, that I feel very good about. Obviously, from the very beginning, there are two characters, the mother and the, the father of the family in Sweet Apple, Ohio, that were always cast with oddballs. I mean, the original production had Paul Lind. We were to believe that Paul Lind was the father of a family in Sweet Apple, Ohio. Yes. Who longed to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. Without medication available. (laughs) Or as somebody once said, keep in mind, Mid-America just thinks Paul Lind is funny. Uh Uh-huh. That's true. (laughs) And Kay Medford, who who is not remembered enough who played the long-suffering mother of, of Albert. And um, I thought it was kind of wonderful that you cast Bill Irwin and Jane 
Michelle in those two parts because they are clearly out there performers. Yes. Was it fun working with them? Oh, I adore both of them. And, and not only are they both dangerous and will take chances, but they both so understand the process of structure and actually you know, really learning something. And once you've got that down, then you can play and have a good time. They're, they're both absolute consummate pros. And, and I love Bill Irwin in the show. I think he's done a great job of a contemporary essay of midlife, mid-century crisis. Right. The man who's sort of out of his mind. In suburbia. (laughs) And those people after that war grew up too fast. Their their adolescent got put on hold so that they could become parents. And so it's when their kids act out that they realize, I never really got to do that. Or that passed me by much too soon. I, I love that Bill has captured that time in people's life where it may not be too late to have the fling, but you at least have to acknowledge that I missed it. It's gone. It's over for me. That's fun, especially in light of the particular notion of Bye Bye Birdie being a show that's done in every high school. And you know, I, I realize that as you talk that what the father does when they're on the Ed Sullivan show, it's like you know, oh my God, it's my moment of fame, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything I can to be seen by the camera. Exactly. Everybody wants that moment. Everybody wants to be famous and recognized. And Harry McAfee has never been recognized for anything other than being a dad. And right. That's what's so joyous about, I think, the end of Act One with Bill. Oh, that's great. And, and, and the way you did the breakfast with it being removed from him so everybody's prepared for Conrad Birdie to come down for breakfast. And wonderful, wonderful touches. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's silly. But one plays it seriously, as you did, uh, and yet said it in a kind of wonderfully, I wouldn't say cartoon way, but a wonderfully colorful way. I noticed in a roundabout publication that you had talked about as a theme for the production, the Carousel of Progress at the New York World's Fair in 1964. Now, Bobby, you're not old enough to have seen that. I am indeed old enough to have seen that. I didn't, however. I grew up in Maine, so I've seen books and watched documentaries and stuff. And Andy Jackness, my set designer, did grow up in New York and was there a number of times. And it, it was really the people mover that was part of Disney's exhibit. He actually become partnered with Kodak, and that's where this all came about. It now has been down at Epcot Center in Disney World for years. But the whole idea of technology making the American family stronger and um, allowing you to have more time to bond and be together, if you only owned all those appliances and all those ideas about moving forward. And it seemed as though it was a time where people genuinely had hope about the future without nearly as much fear or trepidation for good reason that we have. Um, And and I like that. We went back to the Montgomery Ward catalogs and said, look at these people. This is not with a wink. These are no parentheses around this emotion. They're genuinely saying that they are who they are without apology. And and I I felt that that was the way to go about this was unapologetically sweet and earnest. That's a good point but with the people mover because I I did see the Carousel of Progress. I lived in New York and couldn't keep me away from the World's Fair. So when I saw that, I thought, I don't think Bobby's <laughs> – I don't think Bobby saw that. <laughs> but there are a lot of things in that fair that, that as you say, in, in a way because that was like two years after Bye Bye Birdie opened. Yeah, exactly. Is there a specific year that you've placed this production in your mind? Not really. I mean we went at this as if it was a rock and roll fable and there are no mentions of presidents or wars and it, politics should definitely stay out of Sweet Apple. I, I, I think it's – the rock and roll coming of age story is generationless and it continues to happen, that great divide between parents and teenagers. So it's the late 1950s, but we just leave it at that. I don't want to give too much away for those listeners who haven't seen it, but the prologue in which you have kind of taken us back to a certain 
iconic image with the Ed Sullivan show from, you know, was that an idea to, to just to sort of remind people of what the time was or was it? Oh, no, absolutely. And there was apparently a movie that nobody can really remember the details of or, or the existing footage at all that opened the original Broadway show of all things Conrad. And that must have been wow. a real novelty at the time. In fact, there was one that opened the top of the second act, too. That that showed frustration from everybody from, you know, uh, the Kremlin to all across the country, just people fed up and crazed about young people and how out of control they're becoming, which I would love to have seen those original footages. But I think the opening of the play really puts you front and center in front of the family moment Sunday evening and what that means to gather like that. I love another piece of technology that we've forgotten that there were movies in Bye Bye Birdie. I have no recollection of that whatsoever. I do remember the Shriners Ballet and as a 10-year-old seeing uh-huh. it on Broadway, having not a clue what this was about. And I think you probably made the right choice to excise it from the production. It wasn't the right thing for me. And it also had Gower Champion's stamp all over it. That was his idea and it clearly was created with the brilliant Cheetah Rivera in mind. And I just felt that it stopped the story that I wanted to tell. Did you work with Goward Champion on 42nd Street? I didn't. I came into the show as a replacement. So while I auditioned for him a few times, I never really had anything to do with him one-on-one. I knew his son, Blake Champion, the late Blake Champion, Mm -hmm. um, and I'd met Marge a few times. Did you feel his – I wouldn't say ghost, but did you feel his his presence when you were doing Bye Bye Birdie or was it – Well, it's hard to get away. I mean – these revivals take on a life of their own and the memories of what that telephone hour was to so many people is is very hard to um, to reckon with because yeah. you wonder, was it really that potent and powerful when you look at them all in that one unit set? And they right. didn't move out of that set. They stayed right. in their cubicles. And for me, thinking about that – that, that's going to be a limited number. I'm going to get frustrated without the ability to move this number and tell a story within it. But I, at the time, you see pictures of it and think, God, that's so maverick, that choice to have done that. Um, so, yeah, they loom large, these people. And, and now I'm you know, flirting toward Michael Bennett's. And it's, 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 it's a part of it that you just have to swallow and say, OK, I, I'm going to be compared to that for better or for worse. So – that's part of the agreement you make. Well, I, I thought you did a very, very good – came up with a very good way to do the, the telephone hour, um, in, including making Harvey Johnson more more of a character. And I believe a um, tidbit of very important uh, information that the original Harvey Johnson is uh, Dean Stolper, who's yes. one of the producers of uh, MGM, you know, whatever they call it, on stage or whatever. So. I saw him a few weeks ago, actually. Yeah, yeah he reminded me. Well, you know, the, the, those of us who never let him forget it. <laughs> the, the other decision that I personally personally appreciated was the fact that that you stuck with the original um, musical notions of, of the production. I mean, I know that Jonathan Tunick, who who adores Red Ginsler, who did the original orchestrations and did a new set of orchestrations here that pays, uh, for me, proper homage to what the original was. Um, and w- w- was that a difficult decision or was it was it an, uh, an easy decision or did you feel that you'd get um, – people would not take kindly to you messing around with those orchestrations and arrangements? We didn't need to mess around with – we loved them and felt they felt completely um – 
up to the minute. If you put yourself in 1959, they feel very, very true and and jazzy and as dangerous as rock and roll could be on Broadway in those days. Um, it's really not a rock and roll score. If, if what we define that as being today, it's it's very sweet and it's it's through a Broadway sensibility, through a team writing group of people that worked on Broadway. And I, I thought to myself last night that this show opened in 61. Was it the I think, I think so. of 61 and it has you know parodies of rock and roll which was the decade that that closed like a year before and we're in 2009 how many parodies of 1950s rock and roll songs are still all over broadway all it seems over. to be you know this was the first but it's not an idea that went away no so. Um, I, I think that coming-of-age story and the parental divide with your kids is a, is a story that only well, – well, every generation has their own version of it. Um, and, and but I, rebellion is rebellion. Yes, exactly. And I, too, never was involved with the production. So Truly. That, that we have to share. <laughs> I, I want to move on to the other show that you're involved with right now, which I believe you came from rehearsal or about to go back to as soon as we're done, um, which is Dreamgirls. Now, we are living in an age when the theater is constantly being redefined. I guess that goes with the territory. It always has been. But a revival of Dreamgirls, a couple of years after the successful movie, mounted originally in South Korea, and then a year or so later, a year and a half later, a national tour mounted opening at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. This sounds like the new world that we're in. How did that all come about? Well, my friend John Braylio, who represents the Michael Bennett estate and controls the rights to Dreamgirls, had wanted for years to figure out what that revival was going to be. Uh, is it going to be just an exact replication of Michael's production down to the letter or should it be something new? And I think after the movie opened up the musical, so to speak, and, and gave it the the MTV feel and uh, showed a whole new generation of people who certainly weren't alive in 1981 what Dreamgirls was, that the time was right to do it again and, and, and to go back to the musical and, um, and take another look at it. It's a prohibitively expensive musical. If you were to, you know, do this today on Broadway at full prices, the costumes would be two or three million dollars. I mean, just nobody could produce Dreamgirls unless you had a block blockbuster star, and that doesn't. The, the piece doesn't really work with that. I mean, these these performers need to be very young and serious triple threats. They've, they've well, you know, they've got mm -hmm. to do everything, and the and the expectation of what an Effie does, thanks to these two brilliant Jennifers. Right. Have you a Jennifer? I don't have a Jennifer. <laughs> I have a Moya, who, who is just as brilliant and never saw those original performances in, in, in Dreamgirls and, and is about to make it her own. But this first took its, um, uh, its step as a, as a financial experiment. Can we figure out a way to produce this that makes sense? And um, South Korea loves Broadway musicals I know. and they produce lots of them. They build a brilliant theater, which we would kill to have in Times Square. Um, that for the Lion King. So we had a great facility. We um, were able to get Robin Wagner and Ken Billington and William Ivy Long and the cream of the crop to go over and work on this show. And much of it was built over there. Um, and so the cost was, you know, Reasonable. vastly different, vastly different. And we also had the the real pleasure of a serious out-of-town tryout, which there is no such thing anymore. And, you know, it's a long way to go and 14 hours ahead of the rest of the world. But um, I felt that I could do my work without the first preview knowing that 
everybody was going to be there, ready to pounce on it and write about it and tweet about it. And I, I appreciated that. I, I love doing it with a Korean cast. Nobody could really wrap their heads around that either. Why would a Korean cast want to do a show about African Americans? Well, they wanted to sing that score. And um, they've done shows where they've played other ethnicities without being that themselves. It, it quickly taught us that Dreamgirls was about more than the African-American experience. It's about sisterhood and redemption and family. And, and these people sang it beautifully, absolutely beautifully. So I, even though it was sung to me in Korean, my mandate was anybody who walks in the room here from New York when they come over, if they don't know exactly what is going on by body language and emotions in the room, then I haven't done my job well enough. So it made me work harder. Actually, that's an interesting challenge. You yeah, know, because you know, there the musicals that we see that are not in the language of our own. That can we figure them out, or you know, or can we not? What kind of experience did your designers have in Korea? Because they they have, as you say, they've embraced musicals really from all sizes, from from as you say, building a theater for the Lion King to the smallest shows being done. Did, did they end up having a good time? Did they think that the Koreans understood what they were talking about? They did. I mean, it was a real cu- cultural marriage we all had to make. Uh, the set which Robin Wagner did after great thought. Um, I'd done two things that I, I had such a great experience with Robin on Sideshow and Flower Drum Song. And he'd done the original and I was really torn about should we ask him to come up with something new because I don't want any of Michael's production in here right. um, even though his DNA is all over the show. I mean there are these moments that you go from onstage center to offstage left in two counts. So it's right. his hand is all over that <laughs> show. As many directors who help create a show you know, leave their impact on it. But Robin's just my favorite person to work with, and he's the smartest. And he completely came up with a whole new vocabulary. The original production of Dreamgirls didn't look like a 1960s musical. It didn't look like Grease or Hairspray. It looked like this state-of-the-art big machine. And so we started talking about what that machine would be today. And the fame machine quickly became what it needed, and television needed to be introduced into this. So we have these – for years, I've wanted to put TV on stage, and we have floor-to-ceiling LED panels that move all around the stage and configure to dressing rooms or stage left wings or whatever, prosceniums, and also can depict location. We have cameras embedded all over the proscenium and in the back of the theater. So moments when the dreams go on television and it's clear that it's time for Effie to be erased from the picture and marginalized, we show you that in close-up. Wow. And also in the second act, when you know Dina becomes the mega mega star, that's a part of the tool of it. So I think it's it's there to enhance the experience, to to make it feel like the people in the back of the balcony are with us. But I think it's it's absolutely a dramatic tool that is justified and um, lots of fun. So yeah, we all have had our challenges. Robin probably had it the easiest because the set was built here at Hudson, okay. <laughs> because it is that kind of state-of-the-art technology, brand new software. Nothing like this has really been done before. We had a dress rehearsal uh, last fall up at West Point. So we've actually got to see the set at the shop, at West Point at Dry Run, and then 12 weeks in Korea. So the kinks have been hopefully worked out by the time we got here. Ken Billington 
and William Ivy Long both got to redo the show. I mean, we, we basically had an out-of-town tryout that then we had um, six months in between that and when we started to rehearsals. Well, you know what? That wall would be much better served <laughs> by this instrument. And a lot the clothes were created for Koreans, so there was skin tone differences, obviously. And we basically got to make an entire new set of clothes. The, the craftsmanship over there is just brilliant. Yeah. But log- logistically, it's been crazy. You know, you have to have, have the initial fitting of the gown. In Muslim, you have to send it back, partially bead, then send it back to America and finish it. So it's been a lot of choreography and a lot of um, brilliant managing of this thing. But I think we'd all say... Yes, this is a very interesting way to do a show that protects the creative right. team in the, the best way possible and affords us to have this luxurious production. You look at this and you think, wow, this has been created to be a national tour because it, it looks pretty spectacular to me, top to bottom. You had mentioned earlier that, again, Michael Bennett's DNA is all over Dreamgirls. Now, John Braglio, who is, as you mentioned, the executor of the Bennett estate, but he's also moving in, into producing. He produced the revival of Chorus Line. He's the producer here. As the producer and the gatekeeper of the Michael Bennett estate, did he give you free reign to Michael Bennett or was there an interesting dialogue between, the, you know, I, the producer, want you to change this of Michael's or or was it pretty much left to you to figure out what, what of Michael's you wanted to include? Well, we've had an ongoing dialogue about this. I, I, John definitely made a decision when he approached me that this was going to be a new production. But three or four years ago, I, I was dispatched over to London um, to meet with a number of casting people to see if we could could cast a production that would have been my directing it basically but using Michael Bennett's production scenery costumes and somebody would have reproduced that choreography and that I didn't think was as interesting I think you know chorus line you would have been out of your mind to try to reinvent right. that I don't think there's anybody walking amongst us today that would have the nerve to say I have a brand new concept for this and I can you know top that original I don't think Dreamgirls is the same thing and I think because of the movie and because of opening up the story it's it's time for someone else to put their hand on it. Um, but his is all over it. Yes. Did, uh, did you um, – is your production informed by the movie in any way or is it are – you, are you back to the stage version and, and whatever adaptations or stuff? Is it different from the, from the movie or is uh, – Act 1 is virtually unchanged and I think next to Gypsy, it may be the best – Act one ever constructed. Uh, it, it, it moves like this amphetamine rush. Uh, one thing after the next after the next. It's brilliantly put together. The second act, we always felt uh, one of the disappointments was when Effie and Dina, seven years later, get back together, you think, okay, here is going to be this moment that never came at the end of Act 1 when she says, no, I want to stay and talk to the great Miss Jones. You think right. she's going to rip her head off. Right. And in the original, there was a an exchange, but you didn't really feel it satisfied. And I thought, let's use the song Listen that Henry Krieger wrote for the movie with a number of different lyricists, Beyonce being one of them, but rewrite the lyric so that it's a duet between these two women. So that Dina actually has to get on bent knee and say, listen, you, you didn't really know what happened. And didn't he do the same thing to you? Listen to me. Yeah. So it's this fabulous power ballad for these two women. And there never was an 11 o'clock number in that show ever. Mm, good. good. So it, it really, really lands. And um, we have a new top of the second act that Henry wrote with really Reali, who also did the rewrite of Listen. Right. He wrote the song Patience for the movie. So right. he was uh, nominated for Academy Award as well. Um, they had two different versions of the opening of the second act, um, and they both were based around the number Dream Girls. 
in Vegas, you know, right. girls were shopping. To, you know, it was, it was a big, fun Anne Margaret Vegas type number. My objection to it is that it used the Dream Girls song one too many times. And if Effie is to come back at the end for their last appearance and sing that song, it can't have been sung so many other right. times before that. That that's her song. They stole that from her. Her brother wrote it for her, and so it. I, I, the number is called What Love Can Do, and it's filled with irony of the positives of that and the dark side of it. And I think it's a great new number. How did the Apollo in Harlem come to be the kickoff place of a national tour? OK, I've got to get this. I've got to remember this right. We, we know we wanted to do auditions there. That's how it started. We did an open call there last November and it oh, was I remember 1,400 people in the rain. It was astonishing how many people came out for this. And I'm not sure. I think there's at least four of those ladies who made it into the show. Oh, good. Um, and it was just suggested. You know, you're going on the road with this. Why aren't you going on Broadway? John really wanted to take this across the country before we brought it into New York and um, felt the title of the show – had enough, you know, prestige and weight to to carry the experience, and and someone said, "Well, what if you were to debut it here? What a great idea that would be!" And it had never occurred to us. Um, and I thought, "Wow, this is a great idea." The first show, the first scene of the play takes place on stage at the Apollo Theater. Yeah. It's right there, and it's um, it's brilliant. The theater's great. If you've never been in the Apollo Theater, it's it's worth a trip to Harlem. It looks like the Colonial in Boston. It's a beautiful old proper vaudeville house. That needs renovation, but I'm glad it isn't at the moment. It's perfect. And then juxtapose that with this high, high, high tech show. It looks great. How's it being advertised? I mean, I, I say that because I, as a fairly regular theater goer, haven't sensed, except I did, I did notice an ad in the Bye Bye Birdie program, but is it being virally marketed, you know, through the internet? And I do believe that that is a component of it. Um, I know we're selling tickets, so I know what, good. <laughs> whatever device that the Apollo Theater has in conjunction with um, John Braleo, um we, we seem to be doing okay. Uh, there certainly seems to be a lot of talk at the moment what a full-page ad is worth to, taking in the right. New York Times and what that actually does for you. Right. So I don't know that you're going to see one of those for this show. Mm -hmm. um, we've already planned to extend another week, so oh, we'll be up there a total of five weeks before going on the road. And at the moment – there seems to be serious interest in having us come back to New York. Well, that's great. Well, as a native New Yorker, I have never been in the Apollo Theater. So I'm looking wow. forward to this as the excuse to, to, to go and see it. I, I, I want to sort of go back um, to, to – I wouldn't say your beginnings, but, but uh, again, from the roundabouts um, <clears throat> interview with you in, the, in, in, the, in their publication and where you talked about um, – being a performer and how as a director you felt it was important. It's important as a choreographer and a director to have been a performer. Um, did you start out with performing in your mind or did you have an idea that you wanted to go and direct and choreograph from the beginning? I did my first equity show when I was uh, 10 years old. So I wanted to be on stage. Um, was, Wait a minute. You, you're native of Maine and you did your first equity show when you were 10. How'd that work? Well, yes. And on Bowdoin College, there was a, a long-standing theater called the Brunswick Music Theater. That's now the main Jenny State Crandall, Theater. Right? Vicky Crandall. <laughs> Vicky, Vicky yes. Crandall. Right. So many, many people came through Brunswick, Maine. And, and I got my start there. And I – I had been directing as a kid in the garage and the barn and then community theater. And, and that always came very easily to me. I, I could see things and I had a, the uh, ability to articulate those ideas to people. It always frustrated me in 
in less than perfect situations where people's commitment wasn't what I, I wanted them to be, so I'd get angry. But um, that's a director. That's a director. My um, my my real drive was to be a dancer on Broadway. I wanted to do that. I figured, well, I can direct later. I want to go to New York and dance. And uh, I moved to New York in the fall of 1975. The paper strike was just over. It was the musician strike that that fall that, that that caused Chorus Line to delay their opening? It was one or the other. Probably newspaper. I yeah, would think. but anyway, I, days after moving to New York, I see this show and think, "Oh my God!" Not only am I up there, but it validates everything I want to do, everything I want to be. So I I spent ten years doing that. Um, very unremarkable career. I was mostly a replacement in Broadway shows. I always worked, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, it was not a Scott Wise experience for me. Right. And um, any original shows that you were in? No. Um, uh, a good speed transfer of Little Johnny Jones that goes best um, unremembered. Except I saw it. Except you saw it. It was, <laughs> it, it was notable. It was Jerry Gutierrez's uh, God Rest His Soul first musical. Tom Hulse was in it. He was our original Johnny Jones. And then Donny Osmond in New York, right? And then Donny Osmond. But prior to that on the road, we had David Cassidy. So it went through a lots of and different – I believe there's a video with not even any of those guys. A, a, a fourth Johnny right. that was filmed at the Walnut Street Theater. Yeah, that, that right. was a bit of a heartbreak. Right. I think that show should have worked. came out at the beginning of the Reagan era. It was this big flag-waving thing and um, did great business on the road. As a member of the, of the, of the core, though, and within, with the director's eye, were, were you tempted to sort of give suggestions or sidle up to somebody or, or did you feel it was better that you just do what you're there to do? I always knew it was better to do what I was there to do, but I always watched. I, I found my, like when I was doing 42nd Street, you know, I would find a way to get as close to the tech table as I could and, and remembered having a conversation as far back as 1982 with Robin Wagner. I didn't know who the heck I was other than somebody in the show, but I was always drawn to that. And I always felt, especially in long-running shows, that I had issues with how, how they were maintained and that if somebody gets to have a big fat hit, they're obliged to stay involved and you know, keep it together and keep it fresh. So I haven't had that luxury as yet to have something run for nine years, but I, I hope I will It'll come. maintain that It'll come. promise. Um, and uh, again, from that very inter- good uh, interview with you in the uh, roundabout, um, I, advice that, that you were asked you know, to, to give about somebody who wants to be a director or, or choreographer, and the answer was find a project of your own. That helped me. Um, the, the years I was on the road with 42nd Street, changing my clothes 10 times a night, which is what it ultimately gets reduced <laughs> to. I'm a quick change artist. Um, we started to develop um, this project that became pageant. It actually started because uh, – Akasha Fall was auditioning and all the guys in the ensemble were going into New York to to see if they could do splits and want to perform in drag. I had no interest in doing that. Um, but we, the, the gentlemen of the ensemble, put together this very on-the-fly pageant where we – Dolores Gray, who was playing Dorothy Brock, played the reigning queen and it was uh, – Six boys in drag trying to play characters, not to be over-the-top right. extreme queens, but to actually play somebody from the Great West, the, you know, the, the Great Plains who so wanted to win. And, um, and from there, that, that turned into finding a lyricist and a composer. So it helped that I had a show to shop right. with producers because I certainly had no credits and I hadn't gone to school to direct or act or anything like that. I'd been in a few Broadway shows and – the workshops went well. We found a producer, the man who also for 
a time producer been Broadway, and um, we finally got our off-Broadway run in 1991. It's and, done all over the place still. And who wrote it? Who did you take it? Bill as? Russell uh, wrote the lyrics, and um, uh, Albert Evans wrote the score. Frank Kelly was another lyricist on the show. In all fairness to the thing, there was very much – a format, right? And I had these crazy ideas that in the middle of the, the, the part of the contestants had to, you know, answer questions in a beauty crisis unit, and they were. It was a, a pageant for a, a company called Glamorous that was putting outrageous products forward for women to be beautiful. I mean, skewering the whole idea of, of women as ornamentation and sex objects and stuff. It, it, the show had a real political bend to it. It wasn't just a drag show and people got that. And it we had a really successful year and a half off Broadway and subsidiary-wise, it still sends money home. And it's as, – as I mentioned to you before we went on the air that um, – it's the first thing I remember noting you. I mean, I didn't see it, but I remember when Walter Bobby was the artistic director of Encores, he noted that. And I remember him saying, the guy being a pageant, and he also does the Radio City Music Hall, but this is somebody that we, 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 we should keep keep an eye on. And um, speaking of keeping an eye on, I, um, I I wanted to get to the project that you and I worked together on, which uh-huh. is Flower Drum Song, because um, – uh, again, in preparation for, for, for this, I, I, I listened to the album and I have to say, I still love it. I still love what that show was. I do too. Tell us how you got involved. And I promise not to correct. Um, well, but, but you're, you're front and center in that story. And um, David Wong had been working on the show for you and had done a number of different versions of script. And um, you and I were introduced by a number of mutual friends right. after Sideshow. This must have been 97, 98. And you told me about the project. And, and I said, gosh, if there becomes a vacancy for a director, I'd love to talk to him. What an inspired idea, having the man who wrote M. Butterfly take on this subject. And and that happened. David and I got together and we started talking about different ways to go at this. And I told him I wanted to find a way to have a prologue that, that gave us all that exposition but that I could do in sort of a pantomime ballet vocabulary that how that, that immigrant story took place and the loneliness of that and what that felt like. And our partner, David Chase, the musical director – was had a huge hand in, in taking that number hundred million miracles and shaping that into sort of the passport for these people that that's the dream they held on to. Um, I had a great time working on it and doing it at the Mark Taper Forum was the best. And in many ways, I wish the show had just stayed there yeah. forever because we had what four musicians, four or five musicians, and it felt right. We had this massive set on this tiny postage stamp stage. And a big cast, and it all just felt really beautiful out there in this little space. Um, yeah, no, of course I, I do remember that, and I remember you know the script that we had from from, from David did not show a, a huge knowledge of the mechanics of a musical, and you know that's when you said, "Oh, I'm interested," and I, I remember thinking as the person responsible for Rogers and Hammerstein, "Oh, a, a director, that's what this show actually needs," and. Um, and, and I have to say, it, it from my standpoint, it, it was it was an extraordinary experience. And I do remember in California at the Mark Taper Forum, which again, remember, it was at the Mark Taper Forum. It was originally designed, or at least talked about, going to the Amundsen mm, next door, right. and that's it was right. too big, and they didn't have enough money, and there were all these all these commercial reasons that it was put in a smaller theater, which artistically ended up being the best decision to be made. 
But I remember the opening night standing outside um, on the, one of those – the L.A. Plaza and there was this line of people around the fountain and Mary Rogers turned to me and said, what are all those people lined up for? I said, Mary, those are people lined up for returns yeah. because this production is selling out absolutely. We struck a nerve right on the heels of 9-11. There was something about that show, that time, that sentiment that really struck. I think we were extended three or four times out there. Um, and then the choice was to come into New York. And um, I, I so had hoped that we'd find our way into Circle in the Square so we could repeat that experience of less is more. And uh, and, and that wasn't meant to be. We ended mm-hmm. up on a very big Broadway stage. Um, and we did the best we could. But I felt the show was underproduced for that next step. Yeah, well, no, I, th- I, I think that's true. And I certainly know that from, from my standpoint, there were sort of two reactions certainly that came to me. One was how dare you let anybody touch this Rodgers and Hammerstein musical and the other extreme was this show was never any good to begin with. Why do you even bother? And it, you know, it, it, it's strange because, because I have and continue to defend what we did. It's not something that should be necessarily done again. I don't know any other musical that you could do that. But taking a story of Asian Americans – and putting in the hands, as you said, of the man who wrote in Butterfly, the man who understands that world in a contemporary way better than anybody. Um, in, a, in a funny way, I think Rodgers and Hammerstein let you down because the score, by the end of it, I'm not sure that the score that they wrote for their show in the 50s, which is more kind of homespun Rodgers and Hammerstein, really supported what what you wanted to do. That was my revelation listening to it this morning, although I wow. have to say I love it. And, and also – what David Chase did, I mean, you have, a, you have extraordinary collaborators, and, and, and David is, is one of them. Yes. And what he did with that music um, is, is extraordinary. I mean, I, I do remember in a run-through of one of the workshops, I think, and Mary Rogers, who has killer ears. I mean, yes. this, is a, this is a woman who sat in the theater, the Royal National Theater, when Oklahoma started, and at the title song, leaned over to me and said, they're singing a B-flat, it's a B-natural. Yikes. Um, wow. Killer ears. But, and when, I, when we first heard the dance arrangements, which are some distance from what Richard Rogers wrote, and I sat there thinking to myself, am I going to get poked in the ribs, or you know, what's going to happen? And she jumped out of her chair and went over and embraced David. So he's a consummate, consummate musician. So anyway, it was a wonderful experience, and I will continue continue to feel that it way. It was a good one for me. I, I think perhaps it was a situation where you know David and my and you and talking about what we were doing allowed people to to think they remember what it was because is is and I still adore the score. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful score, lush and oh, great and you, fun yeah. show business aspects to it. But it is um, it was very sitcom episodic. Yeah. the book and I, and I don't know that anybody would have really loved that. They would have taken another opinion. So, it, do you it, remember which of the dance numbers you thought of first? Because they were all so wonderfully twisted in the perfect way. I think Fantan Fanny. I couldn't <laughs> wait to do, and I, I saw it in my head long before we picked up a fan. But that that was great fun. And the noise of the fans opening. Yeah, was it was it was kind of fascist as well. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. they, they they brought the you know the the craziness from um, their own country and then turned it into their version of. Precision dancing, and let anybody, let nobody forget that there were dancing Chinese takeout well, containers. Well, they won't let me forget that. Um, <laughs> why a song called Chop Suey? So many people could take uh, objection at. I mean, we, we felt like the only way to do this number was to put it in a showbiz context. You can't sing this song at home. Right. Um, although I think that's how they did it originally. Right. So anyway, yeah. I, I had a ball working right. on it. I'm still grateful for it, and it too 
sends money home now yeah. and then. So there. You got a Tony nomination for your Thank choreography, you. which is great. Um, the, 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 the next thing I, I want to talk about, which I think is real, really important, especially for someone who who is a director and choreographer and 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 lives at least the majority of the time in the world of the musical theater, are the plays that you've directed. Because um, I think it's something that that um, it's it's really really important. I feel for anybody who wants to direct and choreograph to go and direct, so you don't have the numbers to you know you have to confront the actors. Um, and I did see your your Mr. Roberts in, in in Washington, and I thought it was absolutely splendid. So how did that come about? What was that experience about? I, I, that was a phone call out of the blue. Max Woodward called me and said, "Oh, this is from the Kennedy Center, and uh, we'd like to know if would you be interested in directing Mr. Roberts and." Initially, my response was, who's written the music for this? <laughs> I thought they'd you know, turn it into a musical. No, no, this is the straight play. This is, you know, um, the show that was written right before South Pacific and has that all over it. It sure uh, does. And um, <laughs> I love doing it. And I have to say my approach to it, no, there was no dancing, but I'm visual. And, and for me, if I can read a, a page in a book or a script and, and I have images that are big and go along with that, I feel like this is something I can do. And I, I felt very good about Mr. Roberts. I love the environment we put it in, the claustrophobic quality that these men went through, juxting and opposed the beginnings of the war that we had just entered, um, although it was a completely different war and a different time altogether. Um, I love doing it. And it, it, was, it was refreshing to see how not easy it was, but how um, the process was far less intensive to put together a play than it is a full-blown musical, especially if you're choreographing it as well. Yeah. <laughs> you with a bunch of guys in the room get to, to yeah. and, and, put it up on its feet. And we get great guys in the room. I mean, they were all, you know, wild, out-of-control people who I, I still had to harness. There's always that. And I feel good about my ability to do that in a number of different groups of people, from, you know, the Rockettes to 15-year-olds. You have to love to do that. You've got to be able to be part motivational speaker and um, you know camp counselor. How do you bring this group of people around to seeing the same thing? And sometimes it happens. You can't explain it, and other times it's you arm wrestle your way through it. Um, Mr. Roberts was a very happy experience. I had a great time. And, and uh, you also did Hay Fever at the Old Globe. Now that's a, stylistically ago. worlds away from Mr. Roberts. Worlds away. Um, I get very mixed reviews on that. Some people thought it was a great show. Some people thought it was far too naturalistic, which I, I suppose I might be guilty about because I wanted the people to be real, and they were. I don't know. Um, I'm not a coward expert. I kept it moving briskly. I thought it looked great, and um, it 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 felt true to me. So, but again, was that a call that came out of the blue, or was that something you pursued? That's a call that came out of the blue too. Um, I, I think they said we're interested in you either doing Hay Fever or the Playboy of the Western World. It was like, well, <laughs> okay, <laughs> on short two. notice, let's do Hay Fever. Right. Right. <laughs> That's great. But and I'd love to do more plays. I, I, I'm, I'm attracted to it, the world of it. I think that's great. Um, you also did a Carnival down at the Kennedy Center, right? Was yes. That, that, how was that? That was good. That was another musical that we all looked at and said, this can be better. This should be better. Um, is there really a reason to have a second act to this? So we put it in one act, and we, we tried to turn the volume up on the psychology between Paul, who couldn't speak except through these puppets, and the relationship to... His handicaps, his loss of his sense of self as a dancer. Um, we had moments in it where I had a dancing Paul. So he actually wow. could remember himself attempting to dance. Because it's, it's 
brilliant as Jerry Orbach must have been, I don't know anybody thought he truly was a ballet dancer. And I don't know how important that was, but you needed to he know. He was? No, no, no. He was <laughs> supposed like, to be. I had no record. Uh, Paul was broken because he lost his ability to speak and communicate as an artist. And that that's what destroyed him. Ultimately, I think, well, you you got to find a star. You can't do this on Broadway without a big, big name. And we simply couldn't come up with anybody that could play Lily or Paul that would have the box office heft and could actually do justice to the role. Um, so I got the best cast I could. Dancing was the coin of the realm, which it usually is for me. And I thought it was a lovely production. And you, you did a fair amount of, of adaptation, right? We or- did. Uh, well, Francine Pascal, who's Michael Stewart's sister, approved it and actually did the writing, the rewriting with me. And it was, it was really more just a putting it into one act and, mm-hmm. and giving uh, the role of Lily a little more of an arc. Um, it's still a musical that is bittersweet and, um, and, and, and can leave you sad a little bit. I don't mind that. As right. long as the I feel something genuine in the theater, I don't care what it is. Um, but I don't know. That was not meant to be either in terms of it coming in and, and working. Um, well, there's, there's time. I remember seeing a, a production of Carnival once that – Tried to make it darker than it was, and you know, the opening number direct from Vienna for seven days. You know, they did it like a dirge, and I thought, you somewhere along the line here, you got to listen to the music. The music's not telling you that. The music's telling you something else. We did a great opening number, another David Chase collaboration with me, where you saw this entire carnival come together and people going behind these huge steamer trunks and counts of eight and coming out fully dressed in what they were going to be. It was sort of the the load-in of the carnival at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and sped up time between that moment and when the downbeat happened and the audience was led into the tent. I, I love those kind of sweeping openings that you know give you uh, six pages of exposition with no words. Right, and right. Um, It was a great experience. Um, revivals are tough and I, I, I want two or three new shows in my life right mm-hmm. now, not another revival. Um, where did you find David Chase? Where did I? David Chase was a rehearsal pianist who first came to my attention. I think it was a, some tour of a chorus line. He met his wife on this production we were doing together. And James Raitt, the great James Raitt, who, who was one of the, the best um, dance arrangers, musical directors anywhere, had done pageant for me and brought David in as a, um, a sub-conductor. Uh, and from them, James said, you should, you should call David about this gig. I'm too busy or whatever. And David and I found our way together. And he's been you know, absolutely critical to just about everything I've done. And he's a, he's a dramaturg, David. He, he doesn't just write you music for steps. He, in fact, he'll be very stubborn about that until we all define why we are going toward this moment of dance and why we've stopped talking. Um, David's good. He's you, really good. Do you tend – I'm, I'm looking for a glimpse into the creative process. Always a dangerous th- thing to do. But when you when you when you start conceiving a dance number with that that David's going to do the, the dance arrangements, do you are you in a rehearsal room alone with him? Have you a dancer or two? How, do you think it through? Have you thought it through ahead of time? How how does that work? We we've thought it through ahead of time. We've had a lot of conversations about the thing itself. What is the story? T- treating this number like a one act. What's the purpose of it? Where do we need to get to at the end of it? Because if the answer is nowhere, 
Well, well, then it, it can be a fun, fluffy rockette number. But even those numbers, I tended to want to put a narrative to. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was through with that show, after seven years, there was a very decided beginning, middle, and end to that evening, which mm-hmm. then they promptly completely removed. They were terrified of it becoming a book musical and thereby negating their AGVA status <laughs> or something. <laughs> but um, – David and I are very, very stubborn about why are we doing this. So we would talk about the shape of things. And I like to have at least an idea of what the music is going to be before I get in a room with a group of dancers. And then that process happens and the David comes back in and we, we shape it together. It's There's nothing magical about it. It's hard work. Um, but it just I mean, I, there is an art to dance uh, arrangements. I mean, yeah. you know, John Kander did the dance arrangements for Gypsy. I mean, you know, bona fide composers – you know, do that with great seriousness, and I, I sometimes—I um, don't want to tip my hand—but there, there are some dance arrangers who I think uh, impose themselves too much and don't really listen to what the what the task at, at hand is. And to, to take the cue from the composer where right. that melody le- leaves off in the dance for Fantan Fanny, that that has to continue through that number and not necessarily be a slave to that chorus or that melody, but it's got to inform the piece of music and you've somehow got to get back to the song. Um, and that there is an art to that. I mean, sometimes the dance music can just go so far away from the original melody that you, you've forgotten where you are and that the dance is indeed an extension of that original thought and not uh, oleo to it. Yeah. So um, I don't know. You use the original dance music in Bye Bye Birdie, yes? M- much of it because it's just so fantastic. It, uh, it was excellent. I, I loved it and so did David. And so, so did it inform the storytelling that you felt was – was important. I mean, put on a happy face as an example, which which is a, which originally was only one girl, I believe. One girl plus. Then he found another. So it, the body, of the number ended up with he and two girls. And, and you do it with with a group of girls, yes. sad girls, sad, all. all sad <laughs> girls. That was that is without question the hardest thing I have ever done. That number because it is d- deceivingly easy when you look at it. Oh, it's a charm number. Well, it's the hardest number because it's about nothing. Nothing happens during it. You think, what could this have been? You know, how did this stop the show? And it was at the end of the act originally that uh, Dick Van Dyke sang this to Cheetah character. And then for some reason, um, they moved it up earlier in a place that has virtually no setup and stopped the show. And, and I, I, I read – Recently, that both put on a happy face and Once Upon a Time, which was Strauss and Adams' hit from Beautiful the next song. music, they were both written for something else. So perhaps the reason why it, it's it's an odd ball is that it actually wasn't written for the show. It's a plop in, and it's the most successful song from the show. And we tried to come up with all kinds of you know, okay, he's he's a bit of an ad man. He's a Madison Avenue man. He's he writes lyrics, he writes advertising and slogans. So put on a happy face is a series of sound bites of you know almost. Uh, toothpaste ad commercials right. because there's nothing really else there to hold on to but uh, a charming guy who can move well and make these girls smile. And, and boy, the audience last night, was they were so they so loved John Stamos, they couldn't get enough of it. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it, but if you look too deep into that number, it's there's no really reason for it to be there. Well, there's sort of no irony in the whole show. I insisted on that. You know, I, I, I just thought we've seen enough of that. We've seen enough of that, at least for me. 
Um, so for better or for worse, I, I said we are going to play this for real. We're not going to make fun of these people. We're going to, you know, for whatever that investment they have in this moment, it's going to be true. So Dreamgirls will open soon. Soon. We start performances tomorrow night and we open the 22nd of uh, November. We play a total of five weeks at the Apollo. Then we're going to go on the road. We open in Baltimore. And the hope is 12 months or so later, we find ourselves back in New York. Yeah, that's great. Do, do, do we think that, that the, um, the charming community that, that, that likes to give its opinions uh, freely um, will come up to Harlem? Or, or is there sort of a let's leave this alone? Oh, I think they're all coming. I mean, we, we're on a Broadway contract, but we're not part of the league up there. And we mm-hmm. won't be nominated or anything, which is just fine with me. I just soon wait and have it, have it come back to New York. I'm sure, of course, they're going to come, mm-hmm. and they're all going to remember it in a way that they remember it right. or they want it. That, that's the and boy. They all got off on the out of the wrong side of bed when they saw Bye Bye Birdie, which I have to say I didn't get seeing the show last night. But you know, we don't need to go there. It's just it's, it's a side of this business that is very very peculiar. There's an interesting critic in England named Mark Shenton who I know, and actually there was a, there's a production of, of Annie Get Your Gun that I saw him at the opening, and then he came right to New York. And he did a very interesting blog about Bye Bye Birdie hmm. because he, he said, you know, I, I had expected nothing from what I had read. And I found it absolutely charming and basically said on his blog, what was up? These reviews have an agenda that seems to have nothing to do with what I saw in that theater. So I just thought it was interesting. I, I wanted to ask you, Bye Bye Birdie is the first production in a brand new theater. The facade, it's the Henry Miller, and yes. they call it Henry Miller. What was it like being the first – I mean, was it easy or was it difficult? What it ultimately like? became easy. I mean, a year ago, before I went for Korea to, to do Dreamgirls, it, it was basically still a construction hard hat site. So I was standing there thinking, really? We're going to take possession of this in June and, and go forward? And it all came together. It's the best air on Broadway in that theater, they claim. It's the first green theater. And you can actually notice it, how kind of pure and fresh the air conditioning system is in there and you leave the theater without your fingernails dirty for the first time um, while teching a show. It it was ready. It was ready. And I thought, what a great show for a new theater. It's like a brand new pair of sneakers. Oh, um, absolutely. And is it is it well equipped? Did they make enough dressing rooms or do they make the mistakes that usually make get made when No, they, were, they really did okay. It's not built for wicked and I think we are pushing the maximum of what of a size of cast in terms of dressing room and costume space and we're a big show. We're right. a big show for the roundabout. We're a big show by Broadway standards, but we do fit, and it was so nice to have state of the art everything and, and a great new crew. That that was all a happy story, and we were all very concerned: <laughs> is this going to be ready, or the toilet's going to flush? You know, all that stuff that right. could have happened. Just it simply didn't. Um, and I can't explain the bad mood that that surrounded the show the day after. I, I I don't get it either. I certainly was ready to take my hits for this and that, as you always have to be for choices you make, but. Um, the kids, I don't understand because I think they're spectacularly talented. There's no question about that. These kids really sing. They really dance. They play genuine. And I think they were overlooked. That that bothered me more well, than anything else. The only wisdom that I could bring to it was to think that because there actually is no iconic production of Bye Bye Birdie, I mean, we all have the photographs from the cast album that we remember, the, the telephone hours, as you said, in the sort of strangely – abstract pieces of scenery. But maybe it's because so many people have their own 
iconic notion of what Bye Bye Birdie is or shouldn't be from the, when they played Albert Peterson or whatever, sure. that m- maybe that was a reason why, you know, it'll never fulfill the expectations that each individual has because it doesn't actually exist. It and, doesn't exist. And and so many people would come and you'd, you'd see people moving their lips and singing along. I mean, the, 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 it's, it's a good time. Oh, and I, I, I caught the, one of the mothers mouthing the words when one to of the, the kids... Pledge. Yes, to, to the, the pledge. Yes, to the pledge. To the pledge. I thought that was a very a nice, little, <laughs> nice little touch. The adults in Bye Bye Birdie don't have a whole lot to live. Okay. Mean, they, they, they are all kind of stuck in, you know, uh, midlife crisis that took too soon in their life, and they basically are there to react to these kids. But uh, working with this group of teenagers, and we saw 1,400 of them, has been one of the best things for me because they're not jaded. They're not show business kids. They're there every day. It, it's, it's been very good for it, my heart. It also looked, it looked to me last night as if it's a group of people that are having a good time. They are. They generally love each other. That's... Yeah, I think that's great. And they they learn very early that you know sometimes you get smacked around and you just get up and you and do, you do it. what you believe is to be true and what you believe to be correct. Also, th- those those leads are tricky parts. They're very tricky parts because again, as I said earlier, never having seen Dick Van Dyke and you know and Cheetah Rivera, who were not stars. They were given star billing, but they were not stars. And you know, and and I've had d- debates with people about the movie and even the television production, which you know, which which. You know, informed certain things of, about it, but it, it is it's it's so interesting. Kind of, it's kind of like Once Upon a Mattress and Grease. These shows that that live. Although Grease seems to be able to live anywhere, but you know they live a, so often in in school productions and and in, in productions that, that that people do. Well, I, I think our production of Bye Bye Birdie is the best community theater production of Bye Bye Birdie you could ever <laughs> do. It just so happens to be with the New York theater community starring in it. We have Dee Hody playing Mrs. McAfee. Yes, okay, great. come on, you know. Bill um, Irwin. And I love Bill. I think Bill's great. Where else could you – I knew of nobody else. And I thought if I found a Paul – why would I do that? Why would I find somebody who could be like Paul Lind? I, I never – could understand that casting anyway. And yet I'm sure he would have made me laugh hysterically Oh yeah, at the time. I'm sure it was very, very funny. And the most people would say is, you know, he's um, strange. Strange, right. Because <laughs> no, when I worked for Alan Arkin, and I was in a conversation with some, some television people and that's where that line that I loved when he was on, on uh, Hollywood Squares and he was always in the middle and he always was acerbic and making those little comments. And th- these television people said, just remember, Mid-America only thinks Paul Lind is funny. <laughs> that's as far as it goes. That's right. So that's great. What, so Dream Girls opening soon. What's percolating? I'm in- writing a new musical with Henry Krieger and this lyricist librettist we've found in Australia, actually. It's something I've been wanting to do for years. And it's, it's not loosely based on the life of Tammy Faye Baker, but she's the mouthpiece and it takes place at a telethon. <laughs> and, and it deals with faith and um, the trouble one gets into when one lapses or, oh, or allows oneself to be corrupted. It's a big, bombastic, big ballad female singing show, which... I've missed mm-hmm. that, that process of creating something is really where I have the best time. So I didn't think I would have a career of trying to make revivals work. And I thought Sideshow was going to be followed by lots of those new, no, difficult, even... crazy musicals. And um, either the ones that were offered me I didn't want to do or whatever. But I, I so want to get back to that and work on new musicals. Yes, we didn't even talk about Sideshow. What, an, what a remarkable show that was. 
and it's quite an experience. One that it, to have that my first and have it such so beautifully done. Um, you know, we did a six-week workshop on stage at the Richard Rogers Theater. You don't get to do that anymore. And then uh, where do you want to rehearse? The Broadway production. Well, is there another empty theater? And there happened to be the Brooks Atkinson. So we rehearsed six weeks there wow. before we moved back to the Richard Rogers. It was, it was a dream, the way that was put together and the experience. The outcome of it was something nobody could have predicted. But, but even that, we, the show has this sort of Stature is yeah. this legend thing, and it may get revived after all. Bill Condon wants to do um, a production right. of it at the Roundabout. I yes, remember the last I heard. Apparently so. So that'll be strange for me, but that's that's part of it. <laughs> I'll be proud to see it up there and have someone else make it work. The person who has taken shows and revived them and changed them, watching a show that you originated and done by somebody else. But Bill is, is a good man. Oh, he I sure think. is. But also, it's one of those shows that when you look at the cast, it's a kind of extraordinary group of people that were not that well known to anybody no. at that time. I'd forgotten that Norm Lewis was in it when yeah. I listened to it recently, for example. Um, and for a Broadway debut as a director and choreographer, to have such a bold piece um, is certainly remarkable. And one that revealed the most about me. You know, that, that, that I almost wish there had been two or three before that that I could have worked up to because it, it seems as though... Everybody wants that or expects that same thing from me every time. And the material often doesn't allow you to go there. Sideshow was a very dark, psychological, uh, make-believe universe that anything could take place. And the metaphor of these two people can join together, everybody in the audience can go, well, that's me and -and so-and-so. Or that's the other side of my brain when I get upset. I mean, it, 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 it was embracing of a lot of different experiences. And that's always fun. When, when you find a big topic that people can see themselves up on stage. So that, that's what you mean by, by revealing you or, or – Yeah, revealing me. Sure. Who will love me as I am? Come look at the freaks. That feels familiar to me and <laughs> <laughs> my experience in part. Well, that's a very interesting and, and in some ways provocative way to, you know, to end this conversation. Um, I, I cannot tell you what a pleasure it has been. I've missed seeing you. Oh, thank <laughs> you. We you just too. go have a beer you together. Um, but uh, thank you very much for being on Downstage Center, Bobby. Thank and good you, luck. Chad. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhardt. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from the American Theatre Wing's website, americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, We hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Ted Chapin. Thanks for listening.